Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 353 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-hosts Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue and also little Gwen LaRue, who's trying to make a podcast career as, as an eight-month-old. <laughs> uh, we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we sure do. We're going to start with an author feature with award-winning writer David Fleming and his book titled, Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest to Uncover the First True Declaration of Independence, which is called by Andrew Roberts, a renowned historian and New York Times bestselling author, a hugely entertaining page turner, where Fleming proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Thomas Jefferson plagiarized the Declaration of Independence and then sought to cover it up. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And up next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called On Being an Artist. Yeah, and I think that'll bring to a close a long list of tips that Paul's done for us. So appreciate that, Paul, uh, for you. Gosh, putting out more than 40-some tips for the show. Yeah, Um, they've been wonderful. That was great. Uh, We also have a uh, writing topic discussion with blogger uh, Paul Lucart, the author of several short story collections. Title of his blog is For the Love of It All, Be Specific. Just don't specify everything. And then we're going to finish up today with reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast book? This month, we're celebrating the release of book six in the Right Quote series titled Writing Community, Revision, and Editors. Yeah, super excited about this one. There's a lot of great material in there, um, inspirational and practical quotes that we've pulled from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about writing community, revision, and editors. Um, to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Uh, you can order this book online and wherever print books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to you, to the writing universe. So look for that link in the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. Um, Gosh, we're uh, almost uh, out of books, so we only got seven and eight left. Uh, Book seven comes out September 1st. It's The Emotional Writing Journey, Uh, The Ups and Downs of Being a Writer and uh, Perseverance and Everything that Goes With It. Uh, book eight, publishing and book marketing. Uh, it's an October one release. Uh, a lot of good content in there about the publishing world and how to get your book out there. Uh, and of course, we've got books uh, one through six. Uh, so check those out as well. If you want to receive all eight of the books for free, the ebooks, then you can join our street team. Um, just go to the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com, or you can also go to the podcast books page of the website, and there's a link there to join. All you have to do is um, just agree to leave your short, honest reviews online about the books, just a few words about how you felt about them, and you will get all eight ebooks for free. These aren't heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, for as little as $5 a month, we'll give you all the books for free ahead of their release. Um, That's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews that you'll be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing. 
All right. Uh, so yeah, check those books out. Uh, when you do, you're helping the podcast and uh, you're also getting uh, insight into what uh, all these writers think about uh, this thing called writing. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are in Act 1, the interview portion of the show. We've got uh, an author interview that I did with David Fleming. Love his book title, Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest to Uncover the First True Declaration of Independence. Sarah, you want to tell us about David? Yeah, so David Fleming is a senior writer at ESPN. Over the last three decades at Sports Illustrated, ESPN the magazine, and ESPN, he's been one of the industry's most prolific, versatile, and imaginative long-form writers. He's traveled the globe, penned more than 35 cover stories, and numerous groundbreaking pieces on everything from the Super Bowl and Steph Curry to the Musical Chairs World Championship. I didn't know that was a thing. (laughs) And the NFL's obsession with glutes. (laughs) Fleming's unique work has earned numerous national awards, as well as a handwritten note from the White House. He's also the author of two books, Breaker Boys, the NFL's Greatest Team, and the Stolen 1925 Championship, and Noah's Rainbow, a father's emotional journey from the death of his son to the birth of his daughter. He's a native of Detroit, and he and his wife Kim live in North Carolina with their three daughters. Yeah, they live in the town of Davidson, uh, where he got obsessed with uh, the mech deck and uh, took on this uh, epic quest, enjoyed that. Hannah, he talks uh, here about uh, some of the things you're going to learn when you read Who's Your Founding Father. Why don't you share those with us? Yeah, they're going to learn why John Adams low-key accused Thomas Jefferson of plagiarism in 1819 and how Jefferson managed to deflect the charges until they both died several years later. Um, Readers are also going to meet Captain James Jack, who has never received one uh, out of 100th. Gwen is into this one, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Of the glory of Paul Revere, even though he delivered the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence all the way from Charlotte to the Philly Congregational Congressional (laughs) Congress on Horseback. (laughs) Risking his life and never getting caught, by the way. Just saying. Um, And in Who's Your Founding Father? Fleming picks up where John Adams left off, leaving no archive, no cemetery, um, no bizarre clue or wild character, and definitely no Dunkin' Donuts um, unexplored while traveling the globe to bring bring to life one of the most fantastic, important, and controversial stories in American history. I'm sure you loved this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah I, I literally see your Captain Jack right? costume in the background while we're recording. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that's great. That's right. That's right. I'm dusting it off for another event. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it, it really is a, a fun book. And, uh, well, I'm not going to say more because we really get into a deep dive here in the interview. Um, so let's listen in. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Oh, man. Congratulations on the book, Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest. To uncover the first true Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, a long time obsession that um, I was hoping the book would slow that down, but it's it's actually <laughs> making it worse, as you know. So <laughs> yeah, I do know, and we're going to talk about that today. Uh, we're, we're recording this, uh, listeners, in May. It's going to come out in August, only because we I had front loaded a bunch of episodes because of some things going on in my life. But uh, we are doing it in the heat of the. May frenzy in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is about to take place. Uh, not only the release of this book, but uh, we got uh, May 20th, uh, Deck Day coming around the corner. But I, I want to start because the listeners are probably, you know, they've heard me talk about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence because of my own book, Deadly Declarations. But 
Your book is uh, was really fascinating to me. I really enjoyed reading it because you gave me a lot of information that I hadn't done it found in my own research. Well, and also just the way you went about gathering it. But I want to start first of all with your motivation because. Uh, you can't write a novel, you can't write a, a narrative nonfiction book without having a motive and some obsession that goes with it. So what got you obsessed with the mech deck? Yeah, that, that's really well put. That it's, um, I think choosing your ideas is the most important thing because it's something that you're going to have to live with day and night, literally for years. Um, and it had been I think over a decade since my last book and I just hadn't found something that I knew that I I would I would want to go back down to my office and write and not have to go back to my office and write it's a, it's a big deal um and really one of the things I love about this story it's probably the same for you is that this whole thing started I think I ended up the book is probably 100,000 words it's been years in the making the whole thing started by just all I did was look at the North Carolina flag and ask the question, why is there a, why is the date on the North Carolina flag May 20th, 1775? I mean, it was one question and down the rabbit hole I went and um, I am just now <laughs> coming up and taking a breath from that. So I think it also had something to do with once we realized I'm not from Charlotte, we're not from Charlotte, but my kids are. And this is our home now. And I think part of that interest in, in the date on the flag was wanting to know more about um, th this place we call home. Well, it's interesting. When I was writing uh, my novel about this similar thing, I was writing a mystery, but I didn't have my through line yet. But when I found the mech deck, it really got me excited. But then I started finding references to it everywhere, places I'd walked past. Uh, did you have that same experience that, uh, I mean, you live in the area in Davidson, which is right up the road. Um, but it can kind of hide in plain sight, this thing, the mech deck uh, around here. Oh, again, I, I, I feel like this is more like therapy than a podcast <laughs> because I've been saying these things for years. And yeah. finally, it's nice to talk to someone who gets yeah. it, right? Yeah. I live in Davidson. First of all, it lives in plain, it, it hides in plain sight all over Charlotte. But I live a block from campus where I had no idea the motto of the school mm -hmm. was inspired by the mech deck. Mm -hmm. And there, some of the most important testimony that was given during the governor's, uh, the governor's report in 1823 took place literally a half a mile from my house at Beaver Dam, um, a place where we, that's where if you throw a party, that's where you throw your party in, in Davidson. So, I mean, I have... Um, I have done some shots of tequila, I have done some <laughs> karaoke, and I had no idea that it was on sacred ground. And I, once you learn this story, it, it happens all the time, right? You see a road or a church or a street or a school or a, a descendant. It's like, it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, that, for those that are tuning in and, and have been um, hiding under a rock around this area, or maybe you're not from Charlotte and you don't know about the Magdalene, we'll just ground the listeners a little bit. There's this thing that happened uh, on May 20th, uh, 1775, in the little burg of Charlottetown, uh, which George Washington gave us a bad rap, called it a trifling place when he came through later. But, uh, you know, we treated him well when he was here. Uh, not only that, we fought back the British uh, when they were here in 1780. But this thing uh, has been disputed over the years, whether or not in Mecklenburg County, 
uh, these 26 people got together and signed this. And a lot of historians have, you know, because there's not a document, we got a fire. Of course, you got to have a lot of controversy. We're going to talk about that. A document burns up, and so they have to rely upon oral history. We'll get into that in a minute, but I think one of the things you did well, David, in your book, um, so, you know, in other books I've read, and we have to give props to Scott Seifert, who wrote the nonfiction book, and I used his as, as my source, and, you know, there, there are a lot of things about the events that happened, but what you did well that I thought added corroborating evidence to this narrative is the motivations of the people uh, and the character of the people who were actually the signers of the document. I mean, you talked at one point in the uh, book about uh, these Calvinist-style Presbyterians, these Scots-Irish religious and political radicals. They believed that only God had the authority to rule, not monarchs, politicians, or any mortal man. And so to them, resistance to tyranny was the highest form of obedience to God. Let's talk about that a second, because that is... um, that's as important, I think, as anything to whether or not these were the kind of people that would have done this. Yeah, one of the one of the um, the I, I guess it's a the historians when historians are people who doubt the mech deck. One of the points that they always made was, well, why would people in this little frontier town care enough to declare independence? And it was shocking when you look into what was going on at time when you put the whole story into context and then especially the fact that I think 25, 24, 25 of the signers were of Scots-Irish Presbyterian descent. Um, I think the line in the book, in my book, is once you learn the full background, it would be much, it would have been much more strange if these men had not declared independence than if they if they had. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, this, these are people who were essentially kicked out of two countries, crossed an ocean, and then came all the way down through Pennsylvania to the, to the, uh, Carolina frontier to get away from the crown's tyranny. And so you understand how they, at some point enough was enough and they just, not only were they going to be independent, they were going to put it in writing and stick it in the King's face. And, um, once you learn the full story, of course, that's what these men would do, that there would be no other choice, I think, for them. Yeah. And there was a minister, I think his name was Craighead. Is that right? And he, Alexander he, Craighead. Yeah. And he preached out of the Sugar Creek uh, church area and, and other places. And I think so this fire got lit. Yeah, there was a spark that lit it on May 20th. But this had been kind of a slow burn up to that time because of uh, what the Church of England was doing to the Presbyterians, right? Oh, absolutely. If you understand the the Scots Irish Presbyterians at the time, like you said, they they um, resistance to tyranny was the the highest form of obedience to God for them. Then they have this radical uh, preacher who, again, he was so sort of pro independence. It, it bordered on treason. <laughs> You know, he got kicked out of Pennsylvania, Virginia. He came to the Carolina frontier because he wanted to be able to say and preach, um, you know, his rebellion. And he indoctrinated the entire Carolina frontier. So, again, these people, it's not just, you know, it's like the old Blues Brothers. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. they were on a mission from God. And the moral high ground, especially in America, is a very, very... Uh, it's a very strong motivator. And yeah, Alexander Craighead, again, there was this perfect storm that happened in Charlotte. 
on the Carolina frontier. And religion was a huge part of that perfect storm that created this mech deck. Well, I loved one of the uh, early blurbs for the book, Andrew Roberts, who New York Times bestselling author, um, he said, uh, David Fleming proves beyond reasonable doubt that Thomas Jefferson plagiarized the Declaration of Independence and then sought to cover it up, this historical detective work at its best. And so that's a term, that's a legal term. And over the years, as you know from your research and I learned from mine, a lot of amateur historians who happen to be lawyers are writing about the mech deck. And and I think it has something to do with the fact that, uh, you know, there is a proof requirement here. People, the historians want to have proof. And I, I kind of talk about this when I go out to these book clubs and say, well, you know, if, if, the, if, if we had to have a document, then anything that happened before the uh, Gutenberg Press, it didn't happen. It didn't exist. There wasn't any history, right? So you had to rely upon oral history, but you took it further. You actually went to the places uh, that, that these things happened. And I'm just wondering, how did that um, sort of guide your muse in writing this? Is that something you normally do in your, because you're a sports writer of Crown Out Loud. You're not, you're not a historian, right? You're not, you're not a lawyer writing trying to be a historian like these other amateurs. You're a sports writer. How did, you, how did that help you uh, in writing this narrative to actually be in these places? Yeah, it was a natural extension of, of what I do for ESPN, which is more sort of long form, in-depth right. uh, magazine style stories where I've always believed, right? You go to the place, you get boots on the ground, you look people in the eye, you talk to people, you you knock on doors. And this book really was an extension of that method. And it really turned out to be, it really helped me a lot because... There is nothing quite like walking in the footsteps or doing the research yourself. And I, it's a really good point that you made about the sort of uh, the lawyer-like approach to this story because I approached it at the beginning as a skeptic. Mm-hmm. And when just started to sort of peel back the layers of all the proof, my first thought was, if this ever came to trial, it the the, the jury would deliberate for 10 minutes. The the The... <laughs> The, the evidence on the side of the mech deck is, is overwhelming. Um, and that sort of really, that also really uh, picked my interest because it's strange how people have dismissed it as a, as a legend or a folktale when there's so much really legitimate, overwhelming evidence. And so making the effort to go there to see these things in person with my own eyes um, it just sort of solidified these things for me in my mind. And I want to ask you about that uh, journey, that epic quest, which is in the title of your book. But why do you think, I've got some own theories too, but why do you think that uh, historians, I mean, some of them can be biased. We've seen that historically. But why do you think they discount uh, the Mech Deck story? Well, there's, I mean, how long can we go on this podcast? Because uh, yeah, there's, no, um, no. there's really yeah. a lot of different elements. I yeah. think... I'll try and list some of them quickly. I think that there was a concerted effort um, to to take away the South's claim to any sort of original patriotism after the Civil War. And that's a whole other debate. But that definitely was a factor where it was like, if you're going to declare war against your own country, you lose the right to claim that you're the original patriots of, of, of America. And uh, part of me understands that. But then on top of that, it's also sort of, it's how our brains work. You know, we're fighting millions of years of evolution. 
we lock in a handful of details from any historic event and then our brains just shut down and say, I'm not taking the energy to learn more or to actually relearn what I think I already know. So we're dealing with, I mean, we're dealing with historic cultural things, um, brains and evolution. And then I think there were also, this was really fascinating to me. There was a, right as the MechDeck controversy was taking off in the 19th century, there was a concerted effort by scholars and historians, professional scholars and historians, to really push back on the sort of amateur historians who had written most of America's history up to that point. And I think that's where the, when you read the some of the, the doubters and deniers from the 19th century, there's a strange anger and sort of um, incredible sort of condescension about the mech deck and Charlotte and, 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 and the story. And I think because there was a concerted effort to say, we have to make history a serious profession and, and, and scholarship. And so if, the, if no actual document exists, we're dismissing the whole thing out of hand. Yeah. That's interesting. Before I get to the, to, to the quest here, you know, we are going to spice it up with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's controversy that, that, that uh, blew up in 1819. But uh, on, you went to the home of John Adams, to his crypt. You went to Monticello, the home of Jefferson. You went to Alexandria, and you looked for this uh, fountain of whatever. <laughs> fountain of Indo- I wouldn't call it the fountain of the youth, fountain of independence, uh, the home of John McDowell Alexander, who, who, by the way, uh, Jefferson said, you know, was, was somebody that had been made up. And then you went to the rock house. You went to the grave of... Uh, Alexander Craighead, you went to the British Public Records Office. I mean, that's so cool. Which of these uh, trips that you made uh, impressed you the most, or had the most effect on you? Oh, it, it's got to be the it's got to be the Freedom Spring in okay. in Huntersville, um, because very early on, it was one of those things where I the first ten people I called asking for help, they either just sort of hung up on me or said, you know, that doesn't exist or it's been lost for a hundred years or, you know, I, we, no idea. And I was really taken aback by that. I thought people would be eager that someone would, was still looking or interested. And it, so it was, it sort of, it's the idea of the whole book, the story, the quest, the way I went about it all came together when I just showed up at the Baptist church that is on Alexander's land now and said, help me find this spring, because it's a direct connection to where the mech deck was written and, and, and conceived. And again, I thought I would get run off, right, by the Baptists in Huntersville. <laughs> and the, 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 the Baptist minister said, I know where that is. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, it was just kind of like a, I, we had been sending emails back and forth, but I just out of the blue showed up and he went, yeah, I'll take you there. And I, it was just, and we did, we had to, we had to do a little bit of trespassing through a construction site and uh, traipse through the woods. And I had been there a dozen times looking for it on my own. Um, but he and I found it uh, in about a half an hour. And um, I was so excited. I was originally going to cannonball into it for the book. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, uh, maybe not, but um <laughs> I ended up taking just a little drink from the Freedom Spring, and the the Baptist minister was like, 
I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just a little context here. So this would have been an area near John Manute Alexander's home at the time. And John Manute Alexander, he was the secretary of this convention of 26 uh, men. And this was sort of leading up to, this is where they would sit around and talk about, you know, independence and things that had they been talking about it openly could have subjected them to arrest or worse uh, execution. And so uh, that sort of there. And then on May 20th, you know, it took a long time for the word to get to Charlotte. Um, just so happened a rider comes in that day. It was sort of the perfect uh, confluence of events for this to happen in Charlotte, right? Yeah. And I, you know, if you look, there's a sign in that part of Huntersville that says Alexandriana birthplace of the Mechdeck. And most people know that it was, it was written and declared downtown at Trade and Tryon where the old county courthouse was. But the, the story behind the Freedom Spring and that sign about being the birthplace. And again, this is another layer that's really interesting. One of the, again, one of the, the, the doubters and the things that doubters and deniers say is, oh, what did these, you know, what would a bunch of farmers and um, hicks know about the cause of freedom and independence? Well, it turns out the men that, that met at the Freedom Spring for months leading up to the actual declaration, they were all Princeton grads. So mm -hmm. these were all men, very learned men, um, very, very sort of high level discussions about uh, freedom, independence, liberty, and things like that. And so that, again, to be able to find the exact spot where they met and have it actually exist, again, just sort of solidified for me um, the importance of this, of of this actual declaration. Yeah, it's great. I love your sort of blurb. Long story short, it involves, uh, that is the McDeck story, it involves Jefferson's ego, which we'll get to in a minute, a really bad house fire, reluctance to give the South credit for anything after the Civil War, miscalculation by uh, President Ford's advance team, a theft from the British Royal Archives, and a few other twists of fate, not necessarily in that order. You've got a reading for us from the book. Uh, would you mind uh, sharing that with us? Sure. Yep, I'd be happy to. And I think this will transition well into the whole Adams and Jefferson thing that right. you've been um, uh, mentioning, because that really, that really, again, solidified it, but also kept the controversy alive for, for, for all these years. All right, this is chapter eight. Uh, the title is The Monster of Monticello's Indecent Exposure. Our tour ends at the foot of the rotunda the domed library designed by Thomas Jefferson as the centerpiece of his beloved University of Virginia and the spot where, our student guide informs us, we should leave all of our clothes. As an occasional guest lecturer at UVA and a dad with two college-aged daughters, I've become something of an expert on campus tour guides. And right away in Charlottesville, I could tell our backward walker-talker was going to be amazing. Within the first 10 minutes, a UVA undergrad will call Lisa, revealed that she despised her roommate, had thrifted her entire outfit, cried her eyes out during her first chemistry lab, loved the school's renowned acapella clubs, but mostly because they threw the sickest parties, and she had once blown through $400 at Starbucks in less than a month. My daughter Kate's response to the Starbucks confession suggested she took it as a challenge instead of a warning. Somehow though, Lisa managed to save her best material for last. At our final stop on the pastoral lawn, just below the rotunda, she shared the intimate details behind UVA's strangest graduation requirement, streaking. 
Of course, Lisa explains, here at UVA, where they insist on saying grounds instead of campus, and Jefferson's original set of student rules ran 95 pages, they have very strict and long-held traditional guidelines for any and all acts of spontaneous nudity. Sometimes before they graduate, students are expected to strip naked and leave their clothes at the top of the rotunda's expansive steps, just as Lisa described. They must then run 740 feet down the perfectly manicured lawn to the statue of Homer, it's okay, he's blind, kiss the bard on the backside, return to the rotunda's portico, and then whisper through the keyhole, good night, Mr. Jefferson, to the massive 160-year-old marble statue of the school's founder on display under the rotunda's oculus. The UVA streaking tradition, like all streaking traditions, I suppose, began in the 1970s, and it peaked in 2019 after the Cavs won the NCAA Hoops Tournament. Standing here now at the foot of the rotunda, though, I can't help but wonder if the streaking endures in part as a kind of protest, a celebration of the ultimate form of equality, openness, and transparency conducted at the Temple of Thomas Jefferson, a man we now know was notorious for covering things up. Over the last 90 minutes, Lisa has expertly detailed every conceivable aspect of life at UVA. There have been deep dives into cafeteria food, secret societies, Edgar Allan Poe, and dorm sinks doubling as toilets. But she has yet to mention UVA's founder. You know, the former president and the guy up on Mount Rushmore? Lisa explains, I always think about this one thing with Jefferson. He was literally like, the person known for a style of architecture called concealment architecture, used for hiding things. I always think about that. Jefferson hid so much stuff and got so good at knowing how to hide so much stuff, he accidentally invented his own style of architecture. Jefferson simply combined two of his passions, building things and hiding things, into a single hobby. Architecture is my delight, he once said. And he was so prolific and talented in a kind of Americanized neoclassical style that one architectural historian referred to him as the father of our national architecture. Apparently, that passion for building stuff was extraordinary. One so-called Jeffersonian scholar actually tried to argue that TJ was so totally obsessed with architecture, he couldn't possibly have had any energy left for an illicit affair with one of his slaves. It is intriguing, though, how so many of the structures Jefferson built seem to become manifestations of the man himself, windows into his soul. And now, thanks to the tip from Lisa, everywhere I look and in and around Charlottesville, I see proof that even this part of Jefferson was corrupted by the man's shady side and his need to cover it all up. <laughs> I love I love this. Well, I like the backward walker talker. We saw them when we went to tour, <laughs> tour schools with our, with our kids. Uh, but this idea of concealment architecture, I remember this when we went to Monticello, that it looks like it's a one-story house, but it's two stories. He's built it in a, such a way to, to make it look something that it's not. And uh, I'd never thought about that in terms of tying it to his personality. But listeners, one of the things this book reveals, uh, in addition to being very funny in the way it does it, um, is all of the personalities that are involved in this story. You can't solely look at this as, okay, let's put on the elements of this case and let's figure out whether it's true or not. You've got to look at the credibility uh, 
of the people that were engaged in this conflict. And in 1819, when John Adams found out about it, and they were frenemies by them, I mean, they didn't like much of each other, but they wrote to each other. You know, he accuses Jefferson of copying from it. Jefferson calls his the, the thing spurious and apocryphal gospel. But you've really honed in here, David, on the regional conflict, the political conflict, the personal conflict. And, you know, at that time in history, is it not true that Jefferson was revered? And anybody that would doubt what Jefferson said at that time, including whether he would have had an affair, you know, they might have been taken out back and taken care of or something. You know, it was just that kind of thing. So oh, is it the fact that we've had time a couple of hundred years now to sort of see Jefferson in a new light? Does that help uh, tell the story of the mech deck a little more clearly? Yeah, I um, I didn't want to bore you with more of my reading, right, but right. that chapter goes on, that part of that chapter goes on to say exactly what you're uh, mentioning, is that Jefferson, the, the opinion for, for hundreds of years, the argument about the mech deck was, how dare you say anything about Thomas Jefferson? He's a saint. And okay, 20 years ago, in the last 20 years, that opinion has changed uh, dramatically, maybe more than any other um, U.S. president in history, right? Uh, in 1999 is when the DNA proved that he had had, he had fathered at least six children with with Sally Hemings. And, and since then, the idea that there's, you can no longer just argue that it, how dare you uh, criticize Thomas Jefferson's character. And now that has reopened the door to examine, well, he did all these other terrible things. Plagiarism probably was not beneath a man who enslaved his own children, <laughs> I guess is, is, is one of the points of the book. And so I think my argument is it, at least it's worth another look. Um, now that we know what we know about Thomas Jefferson, um, it's definitely worth another examination about whether John Adams' original accusation that he plagiarized the mech deck uh, was actually true. Yeah, and a little context here. We don't have time to go into all of it. You should read this book and uh, learn more. But, uh, you know, after this event in May of 1775, a fellow named Captain Jack got on a horse and he rode to his own peril to Philadelphia, took the documents there. And the delegates kind of gave him the brush off, sent him home. But they were uh, consorting and talking with other delegates. Uh, maybe not John Adams because he didn't know about it, but perhaps Jefferson. And so Adams didn't learn about this until 1819 when the story got published in the Essex Register. And, you know, he was accusing Jefferson of copying because the words are similar. Right, David? Of the two documents. Yes, yes. There are probably half a dozen sections that are that 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 people have said th this cannot be a coincidence, right? Either right. Jefferson plagiarized the Mech deck or the Mech deck plagiarized Jefferson, but somebody did some plagiarizing <laughs> with one of these documents. Right. Um and yeah, more and more it's looking like Jefferson, especially when you when you learn about how he wrote the declaration and the, the the picture that was drawn for me was that he basically took all of the relevant documents that had been put out and were sort of circulating on his desk and just sort of uh, copy and pasted um, to put together the Declaration of Independence. And I think the mech deck was certainly one of them. And we can't discount the fact that Adams might have been a little jealous of uh, 
Jefferson's notoriety uh, with the Declaration of Independence as if he was the founding father, given all the things John Adams had done, you know, up to that point in time. But you had an interesting line in the book. It, it might be the same chapter, I'm not sure, but it says, in the end, though, Jefferson and his stands made one fatal miscalculation. Don't pick a fight with a region full of devout Scots, Irish patriots. <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was one guy, Joseph Wallace, he said, called all the Mechdeck deniers up north a bunch of liars and slanders before before politely offering in the most Scots Irish way ever to supply personal satisfaction to anyone from Virginia man enough to question the Mechdeck to his face. So this really was a conflict between Virginia and North Carolina and a, and a conflict between Adams and Jefferson. And it just took on this... Uh, life force because Charlotte kept celebrating it, right? Yeah. And I love that you brought that up because some of my favorite um, quotes are from the Charlotteans. And I wonder why we still don't have this kind of same fire, but they, they were, they, you're talking about priests and pastors right. and educators <laughs> were volunteering to go up to um, Virginia and slap people around for, <laughs> for doubting the mech deck. And somebody else suggested building a a wall on the border between North Carolina and, and Virginia. And, and it, yeah, that's, um, it just became this it thing. And I, what I love about Charlotte and I wish we did this more, they just said, forget it. We don't care. We're, we're going to celebrate it. We're going to make it a holiday. We're going to bring presidents in. We're going to bring crowds of a hundred thousand people in. We don't care that people, uh, don't don't think it's real. We know mm. it's real. We're just moving ahead with 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 honoring these patriots, and mm. I love that spirit because it goes directly back to what created the Mech Deck in the first place. All right, a couple of writing questions while we have time here. Um, this book uh, has a certain. I mean, you, you could approach uh, either like novels about the Mech Deck or like Seifert's book uh, where he did sort of both sides. You took a very uh, personal almost memoir approach to it. You went in and like you said, you almost cannonballed into the freedom spring, but you had a certain humor about it and a certain voice that, uh, you know, listeners, this is not a slow read. You're not, it's not a boring treatise. You're going to get treated to some humor. And I'm just wondering, does that come naturally in all of your work? Did your editors help you get here? What was the process of adding that snark to this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, my family would say, unfortunately, it comes very natural to me. Um, and it was a light bulb moment for me. I had, uh, you know, I'd known about this story for years. I mean, over 10 years. I was at the dedication of the Captain James Jack statue in 2010 mm-hmm. and was thinking about it then and just couldn't, I knew I couldn't write a history book, a straight history book, and I knew I couldn't write uh, fiction uh, like, like you've done. And finally it was an editor who said, um, I love Sarah Vowell who does, um, she does a lot of sort of in the same vein, sort of her experience, the books are about her learning about history. And so her personality comes through as she's learning these, Mm -hmm. these things. One of her best books is assassination vacation. Um, (laughs) And I thought that's when the light bulb, someone said, you should do it like Sarah Vowell. Just do it as you discovering this crazy story um, and and write it in a way that you would want to read it. Um, and so I think you almost trick people into, when you get to the end of the book, you've really learned a, a lot of stuff about history without without realizing um, that that I just did that to you. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, part of my review that I left online was I said, at times I had to catch my breath. It felt like I was riding shotgun on a first and freedom roller coaster ride. I love the way the author bit into the mech deck story and wouldn't let go. And I'm wondering, was this kind of a roller coaster ride for you and maybe your family too? Because there was this funny scene where you are texting with your wife and she says, mech deck, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was like. I think I need to go to London. And she was right. like, go ahead. I, you know, yeah. at this point, I've lost control. And yeah. yeah, that was, I just embraced it. You know, I just, and the crazier it got. And what I love too. What really made this book work, and I'm so grateful, the modern day characters are just as interesting and colorful and outlandish mm -hmm. as as the original mech deck signers. And that's what really carried the book was the people who showed me the cemeteries and the guy who who acted like Captain James Jack and just all the all the people who have kept the story alive, they were just as colorful and as interesting to me as 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 the history and and that's what really propelled the book i was i was really really lucky yeah well i'm glad that uh more books are getting out there about the mech deck uh but and that uh you're telling the story in such a fun way because it'll be approachable that way um hey quick question from a writing standpoint uh we ask this of our writers sometimes uh if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known it when you'd gotten started into this uh professional writing thing uh that if you'd knew it then, it might have helped your younger writer self, what would it be? Oh, mine has always been, um, I know when I was younger, right? I thought that it was the 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 type of, uh, of the, your subject matter dictated uh, your level as a writer. You know, I was really, mm -hmm. when I was younger, I was obsessed with, oh, I should be covering professional teams and I should be writing mm -hmm. about big time college. And the path that ended up really opening up for me and led me to the mech deck was mm. it's the idea that matters. The great mm. ideas, they, they don't have to be in pro sports or oftentimes they're not. It's the most obscure. That's what really, uh, that's what really determines what kind of a writer you are. Not the, not the, uh, the prestige of the, of the subject matter. It's how you can deliver on, on maybe the most obscure ideas. Yeah. I love it. Uh, the sport. My, my grandfather was a sports writer and he had a column, Jake Wade Sports Parade, and he just wrote about people who happened to be athletes, you know, and uh, he did cover events like you're talking about. That's the news of the sports, but that's not the story. The story is more, as you said, the long form and getting into it. And I love that. And you've done that very well uh, with this book here. Uh, it's just that writing a novel takes a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm not capable of that. So, yeah. Well, or, or I said novel. Writing something that's the length of a novel, this narrative nonfiction, that's, that takes time to, yeah. Yeah, and that, mm. I think that was the biggest, from a writing standpoint, the biggest thing for me was each chapter is about as long as one story that I do for ESPN. And so yeah. it's hard to exhale, finish a chapter and go, oh my God, I'm, I'm not done. I've got 15 more of these. Yeah, well, uh, listeners, you know we've gone a little long here, and that's because Landis is also obsessed with the mech deck. So, you know, that's why we had to go, go a little bit longer. Uh, you know, look, people ask sometimes when you write, okay, what's next? What's next? But uh, this has been 10 years in the making. Are you just going to kind of enjoy this for a little bit before you pick your next uh, really, really long-form idea, or do you have something cooking? I've got something cooking, yeah. There's yeah. – um, uh, I, I've got another book idea cooking, but, yeah, I really – I, and my family especially is kind of like, you, 
pump the brakes, enjoy this. You know, we there's a there's a brewery in Cornelius that's putting out a, a beer um, <laughs> with in conjunction of the book. And so I do that's a really good advice to just sort of I need to stop and, and enjoy this um, for as long as I can, because it's it, it, it's it's a rare thing to, to, to complete a book and um, we'll see how people embrace it. Well, we had our launch party for Deadly Decorations at Old Mac Brewery. So I, I'm a big fan of doing uh, book events at breweries or you know, bars or that kind of thing. It uh, brings people out, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe much more, more than even a bookstore. But uh, look, David, it has been such an honor to talk with you about this. And by the time this releases, I will have already seen you uh, speak to the May 20th Society. And I'm sure it'll be great uh, when you do. And that's always a fun event. Um, and uh, we'll just tell people that uh, since this is coming out in the summer, be coming out next year around May 20th, and I'm sure you'll still be out talking about this book by then, won't you? Yeah, probably, hopefully paperback. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, every this book, we'll be talking about our books every May from now right, until right. the end of time. <laughs> I always say, you know, it's, it's great. you got a celebration every year, and you come out and you talk about your book, right? <laughs> yep, let's just do this again next year. That's right. All right, Dave. Well, look, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast uh, and for writing this, uh, this wonderful book uh, that's uh, very approachable. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts. LandisWade.com, SarahArcherWrites.com, or SpellboundPublicRelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, we're back with uh, Act 2, writing topics. Uh, we start with a uh, two-minute tip by Paul Reale. The title of the tip is On Being an Artist. So let's uh, listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit with the final two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. I'd like to end the series with a few thoughts on being an artist. Writers and other artists, and all people we might call creatives, have a particular way of seeing the world. Creatives tend not to accept things just as they are. They want to change things, break things, make new things. Yet it can be difficult to remain a creative artist. Many forces are against us, beginning with the need to earn a living, often from something other than our art. Here then is a simple roadmap for writers and other artists to help you stay the course. One, you are a writer if you write. Claim it, call yourself a writer. You are an artist if you make art, claim that. Two, the words will not write themselves. The art will not create itself. You have to do it, and no one else can create your art. And if you don't do it, it will not exist in the world. Three, the time to create will not make itself either. It will not present itself to you. You will have to stop doing something you're doing now or reduce the time you spend doing it and fill that time with creating. Four, there is no shame in not writing, in not creating your art. You can live a long and happy life without creating Five, but don't blame your circumstances. Change them. No one on their deathbed wishes they'd spent more time on Instagram or watched more sports on TV or rewatched more movies they'd already seen. 
The way to not regret is to act. I'll leave you with the poet Mary Oliver. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Thank you to Landis, Sarah, and Hannah for having Kathy Collins and me on for these 40-plus episodes. It's been great fun to create these tips and to listen to you debate and extend them. You can hear all of Charlotte Litt's two-minute tips at charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that. Uh, and thanks for, as we said, uh, you and Kathy participating uh, in these 40-plus tips. It's been great. Uh, you can listen to them there at Charlotte. You can listen to them on these previous episodes. And you can listen to us, uh, as Paul said, debate them because, hey, not everything is uh, ironclad when it comes to writing and being a writer or an artist. Uh, Sarah, what jumps out uh, at you about this? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of bittersweet to get the last tip, I think. Yeah, like, yeah. it's it's been such a great series, and thank you to Paul and Kathy for sharing these. Um, and it's nice to have the recordings, too. You can go back and re-listen to them. But, yeah, this I think it was a great note to end on. Um, I love what he said about kind of claiming the time that you have and, and not wanting to regret what you've done with that time. Um, and also the, the fact that he pointed out that you if you want to make time to write, you're going to have to give up on something else. I mean, you get 24 hours in a day. You always find... 24 hours worth of things to do to fill that time so you're going to have to reduce or or cut back on something else um, in order to make more time to write and that's just the reality of it but it's worth it you know like he said when you look back you don't want to you're not going to regret having written I think like I Mm -hmm. anytime that I write I always feel good about it even if it's something that I don't end up publishing or doing anything with I always feel like that was time well spent if I've been working on something creative Um, so yeah it's worth it to make that time that's great I know, Hannah, you're uh, bouncing uh, Gwen on uh, your lap there and trying to, <laughs> trying to do that. Too. But, but what are your thoughts on this final tip? Yeah, and again, like I echo what you said, Sarah, it's been such a great uh, series from Paul over the past 40 or so episodes. It's just he's they've him and Kathy have both done such a great job and just sort of like giving actionable steps towards improving your craft and all sorts of stuff about the writing life, which is great. Um, I mean, this is such a good, I love this. And I think my favorite part is just kind of saying, you know, straight up, if you write, you're a writer, um, look at yourself like that. Sometimes I think the imposter syndrome or whatever it is where you're just like, I'm not like, I just am kind of scribbling on a page. No, if you're writing, you're a writer and that's kind of the end of it. Um, I think that that's really a great way to kind of classify yourself as an artist and give you motivation to kind of keep moving because you are what you do um and that's really great i also love that he ended on the uh, mary oliver poem i just i know that one and i think that's such a beautiful thing to share so thank you paul yeah and uh you know as podcasters um sometimes this is not easy we we put in some time and we miss other things but it's really nice uh i've even gone back and uh listen to some episodes that we've done and thought, wow, hey, that was, I'm glad we did that, you know, and uh, having the, and it's always going to be there, assuming that, uh, you know, audio stays in style <laughs> for for years to come. Um, but that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, we could have been doing something else, but we've been doing this and it's been, uh, it's been great. It's been fun. And also I, I love how uh, Paul talks about staying the course and this idea of claiming something, um, you know, you, you, you claim being an artist or a writer, you claim your art uh, by creating it, 
and you claim your time. And, and all of that says that you're in charge of what you're going to do with that time. And, uh, everybody as Kathy Pickens says, who's been on the show and she's also uh, a member of Charlotte lit, uh, you know, creating, um, is part of being alive and, uh, we're all going to make uh, mistakes, but everybody's got something creative in them, whether they believe it or not. You just need to give your chance to let it, give it a chance to let it come out. So Paul, Kathy, thank you for, um, uh, being on board. We'll figure out some way to get you on the podcast again in the future to, to hear more from you. And, uh, okay. With that, uh, we'll be right back and we'll have our, uh, blog post for today. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. Okay, here we are with our blog post. Uh, it's uh, Paul Lucart. Uh, it's for the love of it all. Be specific, but just don't specify everything. Sarah, tell us about Paul. Sure. Uh, Paul has written a short, uh, several short story collections, Animal Heart, Brief Instructions, Metropolia, and the Museum of Heartache. His work is included in 2019's Best Microfiction Anthology from Pelicanesis Press, and he's the 2019 winner of the Nassau Review's Writer Award in Prose. His MFA is from Seattle Pacific University, and he serves as adjunct professor, professor of fiction writing at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and he and his family live in Chattanooga. That sounds like it'd be a fun place to go to take a course, right? Look out Mountain, Georgia. Yeah. yeah. On yeah. writing. Yeah. Nice uh, all right. Well, let's listen in to uh, what Paul has to say. For the love of it all, be specific. Just don't specify everything. By Paul Lucart, who is me. A story told only in generalities is automatically a bad story, even if the content has something to do with inherently exciting subject matter. An Old West gunfight, a steamy Parisian rendezvous, a midnight flight on a flimsy dirigible et al. Due to the story's presentation in only the broadest of terms, despite the cathartic or sordid content the storyteller holds in his mind at the outset, we, the attentive audience, never realize the intended effect. The storyteller has declined to share the morsels. His meanness is like that of a master distiller who whips up a batch of his finest stuff and then dumps it into the woods as we watch, dying of thirst. But at least the generalist storyteller has afforded us the mercy of brevity. The two cowboys were mad at one another, so they shot one another and died. We of one accord may rightfully respond, thank God that's over with, and may therefore retire to some front porch to drink whiskey. A story told in generalities is certainly insufferable, but a story in which every bit is constantly overspecified without regard to good reasons is just as boring as the story told only in generalities. With a specifist storyteller, I might say that it is all an entirely different story. Please pardon the pun, but it was so obvious that not to make it would indicate a deficiency in my powers of observation, so great that anybody reading this would immediately wonder if I actually possessed any observational powers at all. If you do not pardon it, please know that it is not going anywhere, and you will have to find some other way to make your peace. But I digress. The specifist storyteller will place imagery and detail into the story via a kind of carpet bombing campaign, lighting up not only the central character and his concerns, but, in the minutest detail, the wart upon the rump of the central character's nephew's next-door neighbor's pet rat, though the wart is, A, intrinsically uninteresting, 
and b as far removed from the thrust of the story as the sins that god has removed are from the souls of the penitent the first cowboy bill jones a detestable drunk who'd ridden from las cruces to yuma on a crippled horse that he called stripe and that was on account of the blaze running from the forelock to the soft pink nostrils oh no tonight it seems we will never get to the whiskey for whatever work the storyteller must do to distill the story to its maximum proof before all of that legwork the storyteller will understand that she must cover light years in milliseconds she must on a particular day harness the power of a particular sunbeam with a particular magnifying glass on a particular sidewalk not to fry tiny ants but to fry the one particular tiny ant whose fried state the rest of the entire story depends upon were that one exact ant not fried by the storyteller, there could be no story at all. Then, in the very next instant, she must be ready to remove herself to the vantage point of the Palomar Telescope, a place from which she may see every square inch of the heavens and report upon them in only a word or two. So close, so far, so quickly. The storyteller, who correctly balances the generalities and specifics of the story, for any story worth telling is unavoidably comprised of both, is a storyteller in touch with herself and her reasons for telling the story in the first place, the why at the heart of the matter. It is in this that we, the audience, place our confidence as we prepare to listen. But it is no small accomplishment for the storyteller. It requires the perfect blend of observational stamina, patience, and practice. Plenty of the latter, mostly the latter. Enough of it, I'd say, to fill an empty whiskey barrel. <laughs> Uh, I love uh, that he used uh, Westerns as his example for mm -hmm. uh, dealing with this uh, issue of generalities versus uh, specifics. I'm one of those that uh, when I'm reading a book and uh, uh, they're describing every flower, every tree, every insect, every frog, and I forget what the hell the story was about, it drives me crazy. <laughs> that that book becomes a book stop, you know, a, a doorstop. <laughs> so... Uh, I think it's a good point. I think the the difficulty here is those finding the blend, right, Sarah? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that was a great point by him that you, you don't want to be either too general or too specific. You have to find the right balance. I'm somebody who I enjoy reading description, but I think it has to be intentional in a way. I think the the details that are incorporated need to be chosen because they tell you something of mm -hmm. importance about the characters or the place or um, the objects that are involved, whatever it might be. And I also think that the way that you write description can be really valuable. If, if a sentence is beautifully written, um, I'll enjoy it just on mm -hmm. that, on that value alone. But I think that there's a limit to that. Like if it's a whole book where it's just beautiful sentences and not much story, that's even for me <laughs> as somebody who has kind of like poetic leanings, that's a bit much. So I think that you have to be intentional about the details that you're choosing to in incorporate and also try to write them in a way that is interesting, whether it's beautiful or surprising or funny or, or however kind of fits with your tone. Um, be sort of conscious of how you're writing those details. But yeah, like you said, you, you don't want to incorporate too much too, and then just kind of bore your reader. <laughs> yeah. And I know Hannah, you had to jump out to, to put uh, Gwen somewhere while we're <laughs> recording here. So you didn't, you, so now. Okay, so you didn't get to hear all of it, but uh, the, the idea here is that, uh, you know, in writing um, you, uh, you don't want to be too general, and uh, sometimes being too specific will uh, pull a reader out of the story as well. And uh, I'm just thinking on the marketing front uh, for you as you're writing pitches and so forth. Um, you've got to 
there's a blend there too. You got to have uh, enough to attract the person, I suppose, that uh, you're trying to get interested in your your client or the story or whatever. But uh, if you go on and on with too many specifics, then they probably stop reading, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's funny because when I first started doing this, my like if I look back on the pitches I would write the very beginning of my career versus now so different <laughs> like how I mean, so? How so? well the first at first it's like i would write just so much because i mean i that's i like to write right so it's like mm. when i was that's kind of the part of the pr process that i was drawn to initially so i feel like i would just be like it's almost like it was a paper or something where i'd be like you know this is these are all the reasons why you should cover this story da, 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 which is good to do but it's like i learned very fast like depending on who you're reaching out to but probably 95 percent of like media representatives or like bookstore where whoever you're reaching out to they're not going to read it all they're just going to be like what are the points so i do mm -hmm. so many just like bulleted emails now and i guess like as you with when you're marketing and i guess going back to the whole point of building relationships and community as you're building your audience it's kind of like you get to a point where you can kind of just email someone and say hey are you interested in this <laughs> and that's the best um but if i'm pitch writing to someone that i've never you know, communi communicated b with before, most of the time I'm like, okay, how can I say what I need to say super quickly and like efficiently and as specific as possible, but not with giving too much detail. So it definitely applies to that. And I guess it's sort of like we always play the elevator pitches. Um, that's the perfect exercise to sort of figure out how to do that because you want to be able to explain what's your book about, why should readers read it, and um, kind of like a cliffhanger or pitch at the end to try to get them to go out and buy the book um it's it's a great practice to do that because you, you really can't if you were to sit there and be like this is a southern novel that is beautiful because there you can see the you can feel the trees rustling and you can smell the <laughs> apple tart in the back of your throat and even in your stomach and then later on in the day you still smell the apple tart like no <laughs> they're gonna be like stop it <laughs> so it's hard yeah, it and, and and back to the writing for a minute, sir. Uh, you, you know this idea um, of general versus specific. Also, um, I was thinking back to an earlier episode we did about knowing your audience, um, because mm -hmm. the points you made about uh, you do like it to some extent. You have to know your audience, right? I mean, if you're writing a fast-paced thriller versus writing literary fiction, uh, your audience is going to be more tolerant of certain kind of specificity or on the other hand certain kind of generalities because they know uh on the generality side they know the genre they know what's coming you don't need to spell it out for them in some cases but in the other they want to get that language that describes those certain things so it's a little bit about knowing your audience isn't it yeah i think that's a great point it's knowing your audience knowing your genre knowing your medium all of that is going to determine sort of the typical amount of detail that goes in um, literary fiction probably has the most detail incorporated, whereas more con commercial fiction tends to be a little bit more plot driven. So it's kind of more get to the point, get the mm -hmm. story out there. Um, also, I think like for me, since I do both screenwriting and fiction writing and screenwriting, it, there's very, very little detail, like basically unless the detail tells you something that you need to know for the story to make sense, you don't include it. Um, you might do maybe one line or description about a character when you first meet them and that's it maximum. So I, I think I, I've learned to be very, very sparing on detail there, but then in fiction, you can have a lot more fun with it and kind of explain more to the reader, but you still want to be judicious about what you're choosing to incorporate. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Paul for that, um, 
got blog posts for love it all. Be specific. Just don't specify everything. All right. When we come back, uh, we're going to have our book recommendations and uh, what's coming next on the podcast. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are in the book recommendation section of the show. Uh, we have uh, more to share. So let's start with Sarah. What you got for us today, Sarah? Um, so today I'm recommending Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. Um, I'm, as of when we're recording this in May, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a uh, radio show slash podcast called Vika with Vicky, and we're doing like a special Ray Bradbury episode. So I'm looking forward to that. I've been trying to um, read or reread some of his stuff in preparation for that. And this Dandelion Wine was, I believe, his first novel that came out in the 50s. And um, it's something that I read years ago, and I've, I've really been enjoying rereading it now. It's actually not, I know he's known most for like sci-fi, fantasy, speculative fiction. This is more just sort of straightforward, grounded literary fiction. Um, It takes place in this town called Greentown, which is a sort of fictionalized version of the town in Illinois where he grew up when he was a boy um, in the 1920s. And it's this sort of like... It reminds me a little bit of the movie um, A Christmas Story, the one with like Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> right, it's <laughs> um, a classic, classic. Yeah, yeah. This is, it's less comedic than that, but it's the same sort of idea where it's kind of like a nostalgic look at childhood and a little bit more structured around anecdotes and vignettes as opposed to like one really central storyline. Um, but it's kind of about like these two young brothers and just their family and other people in the town. And um, it has this very kind of, small town Americana feel parts of it are are funny parts of it are really sweet parts of it do get a little bit dark like there's a serial killer in the town who's on the loose which I guess was actually like a real thing that happened (laughs) when he was growing up so it it does get dark in parts um but it's just it's beautifully written um and going to like our discussion about detail he was just a master of including details and, and really beautiful descriptive language about the details. Um, so it definitely shows that his work, even without kind of the sci-fi angle, could just stand on its own on the level of the prose. All right. That sounds good. Uh, so Hannah, what you got? Yeah, I'm recommending God Themselves by Jay Nichelle. Um, and I'm listening to this one on, or I have been listening to it on Libro.fm. Um, it's a collection of poetry and she's like a spoken word poet. She's got a great voice. Like I've watched some of her videos and stuff and she's just a really powerful um, poet. Uh, but it's a great collection. It's about kind of growing up in the South as a clear, as a queer black woman um, and what that looked like for her and just kind of the pressures of being a specific religion and growing up in a in the body that she was given and um, just sort of like exploring different ideas of how she became who she is and um, what she thinks of God and who she believes God is and that sort of thing and uh, I feel like I love I love listening to poetry on Libro um, just because it's easy to sort of get poems in no matter what I'm doing throughout the day and so this was just a really great collection just to get your brains your brain moving a little bit and think about different themes in life and um, it was really good. That's great. Um, all right. Well, I've got one. Um, thinking as Sarah said, we're recording in May to get all our summer episodes done here. Um, I might play a little golf this summer. I was thinking about uh, John Feinstein's uh, book. Uh, it's a classic, uh, Good Walk Spoiled. 
days and nights on the PGA Tour, you'd think that uh, golf could be a relaxing game, but uh, gosh, no. <laughs> and certainly not if you're trying to make a living doing it, but it's a real... Uh, he, he wrote for Sports Illustrated, National uh, Sports Daily, and the Washington Post, and it was an inside look at uh, what it was really like to to be on tour. And I just thought, with everything that's going on with uh, PJ Golf these days and the Live Golf and all the controversy there, uh, you know, just looking back at what these uh, tour players go through uh, week to week and day to day is really interesting. You think it's all glamour? You watch this. Uh, uh, man or woman walk away with uh, two or three million dollars, and you say, "Ah, oh, they just did that for four days of golf." You know, well, no, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like those authors we had on the show that were overnight successes, but it took them uh, what twelve years, years to get there. You know, <laughs> yeah. some of these uh, mm -hmm. professional golfers it takes them that long, and some of them never get there. You know, they play it, and uh, their walk is forever spoiled, but not entirely because they've got the experience to look back on. But you know, it's just a, a nice insight. Uh, uh, I love these books that are nonfiction, but they're written with stories uh, that they tell about them. So that's that. And uh, let's hear what Mark West has to offer. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. Father's Day got me thinking about children's books that deal with children and their fathers. One of my favorite such books is Danny, the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. Dahl is famous for his negative depictions of adults in many of his children's books, but that is not the case in Danny, the Champion of the World. This is a story about a father and a son and all of the mischief that these two get themselves into over the course of the story. It's an adventure story of sorts, but at its heart, it's a tender story about the love between a father and a son. I highly recommend Danny, the champion of the world. <laughs> I'm, as I'm listening, I'm thinking of the, of the Queen song. We are the champions. <laughs> we are the champions. Classic. Okay, all right. Uh, and we are the champions today because we're wrapping things up. And uh, thank you for hanging in with us uh, in another episode of Charlotte Rich Podcast. And uh, Sarah, with her lovely voice, is going to tell you what prize you've won. Uh, that is what's coming next on the podcast. Sure. Your, your prize next episode is a feature with Jarrett. I'm going to ask Hannah to pronounce his last name because I'm going to yeah, this. Krasoshka. Krasoshka. What, what Hannah said. Yeah, uh, the New York Times bestselling author and illustrator behind more than 40 books for young readers. Um, and we're going to talk about his book, Sunshine, How Camp Taught Me About Life, Death, and Hope, which is his follow-up to his National Book Award finalist, Hey Kiddo. His recent book brings readers back to Camp Sunshine to meet the campers and counselors who changed the course of his life. It sounds like a really amazing book. Um, we also feature award-winning author Marjorie Klein in her blog post titled Inspiration Plus Imagination Equals Fiction. And plus, we're going to have elevator pitches, book recommendations, and more. All right, Hannah, I know uh, Glenn's going to bed, but uh, you can handle this. You've done yeah. it before. <laughs> this is my turf. <laughs> um, all right, guys, read on, ride on, and rock on, like there Queen says. <laughs>